Good morning, CBF. Our scripture reading today is from 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Please follow along as I read. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. It is good to be with you or via online, but we are glad you're here. I just want to first start and just thank those who helped with our missions conference the last two weeks. If you were involved in some way of assisting with that, would you stand? We just want to thank you for the time and effort you've given our missions committee. They're so worn out, they can't stand. There we are. <laughs> There's a few. All right. Thank you so much to the team. I also want to thank all those who are serving in various ways to prepare for our transition to our new permanent home. We have four weeks left in this facility. We're thankful for this facility, but it will be good to have our own home, won't it? It's counting, countdown time. Yes, yes. The, uh, for those of you who might be visiting the first first time our speakers are already in the new building these are temporaries that's why we have to rope off these first few rows uh, it's just too loud up here in the front so that's where we are but mark your calendars the back of the bulletin highlights that we have open houses for two days it's a sunday afternoon early evening and also a monday night but that thursday we will have an all prayer vigil for the new building just praying for the new ministry i'm excited about that so mark your calendars and then november the 19th we have both a morning worship service which will be the standard service that we do and then the evening service uh, which is a little unusual we're going to have a night service which will be just a family time of observing the ordinances of the church we'll have communion and i think we've got about five to seven folks who are looking to get baptized that sunday so glorious way to launch the new building, and I am excited. My socks are rolling up and down. So if you would, turn to 1 John. I know, if you're like me, you're going, where were we in the New Testament? <laughs> 1 John chapter 4 is where we are. Uh, if you got to Revelation, you've gone too far. Just back up a few books and you'll find it. Let me refresh our memories as you're turning to John, 1 John 4. This is the Apostle John. He's the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. He'll write Revelation, and he writes three epistles that are included here in the latter part of the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. If you move too quickly, you'll bypass 2nd and 3rd John easily. 
But in 1 John, he writes, in fact, let's look at this. Turn to chapter 1. Keep your finger at 4. Let's turn to chapter 1 of 1 John, just to refresh our memories. Why is he writing this? He tells us, verse 4 of 1, these we are, these, or thus we are writing these things so that our joy might be complete. As he's writing to a group of readers, it's clear, if we can read between the lines and hear only one end of the conversation, it's a group of believers who are struggling with their faith. They're going through some difficult times. They're also being persecuted, and there's questions of, am I really saved? Do I really belong to this thing called Christianity? And so he's writing to, to, to give them encouragement, to give them joy, and there's three cycles that he'll go through, these litmus tests to look at are, am I truly a follower of Jesus? Well, he asks, how are you doing? He's going to look at one's conduct. He looks at one's love for one another and your doctrine. And so those three areas, he's going to go through three times. We're in the second cycle when we get to chapter four, the third of phase of it, and that is proper doctrine, which we just heard read and this morning as I wrestled with this sermon this week and have been thinking much for us as a congregation, uh, I think there's a subtext here that is so vital to us as a body of believers. So yes, we're going to examine the text, but there's something underneath that I think is so vital to where we are, and I'll try to tie that in the latter part of the sermon. But let me pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. Father, this world is dark. It is heavy. And many enter this room or who are watching online and the pain is almost unbearable. Whether it's diagnosis of cancer, whether it's a child who's gone rogue in the faith, whether it's the termination of a job, whether it's just the anxiety of living in a world that uh, there's wars and rumors of wars and friends that we know are still missing in Israel, whatever the, the, the thing is, it, it weighs heavy on us. And I pray today that we can allow the text to speak Lord, calm our hearts and allow your word as you've promised not to come back void this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. John starts off this section and he says, Dear friends, or you could translate it, beloved. It tells us there is, a, again, a personal relationship between our author and the recipients. And there is a loving concern that we're going to see that he highlights here in the text. Notice he gives a command. Do not believe every spirit, but test. This is, he comes right out of the, the gate and says, hey, take heed. This is a command that I have for you. Now, there are several implications. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down. But first of all, as we're stating, it is not an option. It is a command. In fact, the grammatical construction is warning against an attitude of simple acceptance. We're going to see here's this, test the spirits. You just don't embrace them, John is stating. There, there's various ideas here, but you, they're declaring a message you just can't embrace 100% without at least filtering it, thinking it through. 
Now, the spirits here, I believe, are the false teachers, but there is an undertow of that being the ultimately Satan himself. And we can go back to chapter 2 to argue that with the Antichrist and so forth that have gone out. So, but the first thing we see is, is he launches into this section and he says, I give you a command. Secondly, it's a necessary command, or why would he even spell it out, correct? This is something they need to heed. It's not a false warning or a useless one. I was looking at this week warning labels on article of clothing that say, do not iron while wearing this shirt. Thank you. If you have to be told that, you probably shouldn't be clothing yourself, right? Secondly, or there's one on a reflective cardboard sunshade. You know, you put above the windshield to protect the car. And the warning says, do not drive with sunshield in place. (laughs) We're in trouble. Or here's another one. A night tall sleeping pill that states may cause drowsiness. (laughs) Yep, you got it. So those aren't the type of warnings we have here. This is a valid one. It's a serious one. And, it's, and we see here, it's given to all the saints. He says, dear friends. It's not refined or confined to the theologians, the elder board, the theologians in the room. It is for all the saints. Every individual is being held here accountable and warned I wonder if the church throughout time, we've had individuals sitting in the pews, big C, who've acquiesced that responsibility, and who pays ultimately is the next generation. We're called to guard the truth. We are called to preserve it, to protect it. And notice it's all-inclusive, again, here as we see, but also... We state, he states here, it's every spirit, and then it's plural in the next clause. So in other words, all teachers. It's not about whether the teacher or the preacher is charming, popular, written books. Your parents love that teacher or preacher. No, 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 no. We're, we're called to sift. We're, we're called to examine And John says here to the church, do not believe every spirit. Be careful. Test them. There's another implication here. Giving this command is that he assumes, John does, that there's a working knowledge of what is true. In order to test something, you have to know it. You need to know what you're doing. I don't give you a calculus test if you've never taken algebra. Right? If you're going to do pass a driver's license, you better read the driver's manual, as painful as it is. Right? These are things you have to do. There's expectations. And this is nothing new. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 said, there are going to be prophets that rise among you. And what are you to do? You're to test them. Do they adhere to what God has already presented to you? Is it keeping with truth that we know? Do they speak in the name? And it must come to pass. Otherwise, what did God tell Moses to tell the people? You stone them. It's serious business. And as John is writing to the church, he says, do not believe every spirit. Be very careful. And certainly the role of the the spirit is vital, and he's going to highlight that here 
but it also indicates we cannot dismiss the intellectual, the theological content of our faith. This isn't just about feelings. We've got this to guide us with the role of the Holy Spirit. What are they to test? Okay, we've established we're addressing believers. They are to test, but what are they to test? He says, notice what he states in verse one. Test the spirits to determine if they are from God. Hmm. Throughout church history, we've had individuals claim supernatural empowerment, a special revelation. You fill in the blank. And as we have seen in scripture and would see if we studied even revelation, miraculous activity, special revelation, supposed, is not a guarantee that they possess the truth. We have to be careful. It may or may not originate from the Lord. In Revelation 13, the false prophet who accompanies the Antichrist will perform great wonders. Ooh, careful. Miraculous activity can appear to be from the Lord, but it may not be. And this is why John is telling the church, be very careful. Now, again, the immediate context. Let's put ourselves here. If we were back in Asia Minor, where I think John is writing to these group of believers, they've got individuals coming around the churches saying, oh, you know, you can't really believe what John said. In fact, I've, I've, I've experienced the role of the Spirit in my life, and this is what it should be, et cetera, et cetera. So John is trying to combat this as he sees it. In fact, he tells us why it's so important, because, the latter part of verse 1, many, not some, false prophets have gone out into the world. They're already here. This shouldn't surprise us. Jesus warned his followers that false teachers would come. Mark 13 states, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. This is Christ speaking. I've told you all things beforehand. Oh, they've got a message, but it's one that's wrong. I've been around long enough to see it even in the church. I had a former colleague, led a program in Israel, wrote a Bible atlas that I still use. It's great. Eventually, he was removed because he denied the deity of Christ. Or a former colleague who questioned the knowability of Scripture. And so you had students saying, I, I don't know if Christ rose from the dead. Or what about the preachers who argue that the heart of the gospel is racial reconciliation? Or that the gospel is really a license to live a lifestyle we want to just live? These are the dangers that lurk. And John understood this even back in the first century. Be on guard. Test the spirits. He's not done. He says in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. And what is this that you know? Every spirit that confesses Jesus as the Christ who's come in the flesh is from God. It's a direct application of the test to know. And how do we, what are we looking for? We're looking for those who, do, notice, they don't deny the existence of Christ that's not the issue. They're trying to misrepresent Christ. That's the danger that is lurking here. 
And he says, but every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. So the question is, this Jesus, has he come? Is, is there a pre-existence that he has arrived? Now again, this is a specific theological issue that was faced with that church, but it's still relevant today. And the issue is, what do we do with this Jesus? Is he truly God and he's fully man? Is that an issue? And, and the, the term that we're talking about here, the 50 cent word that will be on the quiz later today, is incarnation. Incarnation. Let me give you a definition. This is a, a little bit heady, but it's more specific. The term is the act whereby the eternal son of God, Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, without ceasing to be what he is, he did not give up anything or he is no longer God. Instead, he doesn't give up. He takes on by possessing human nature. So he was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever and ever. It's clear from this passage, and we could, for instance, 2 John 7 states, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ, here it is, in the flesh. And John writes in 2 John, such a person is a deceiver and the antichrist. And so the, the, the issue that John is, that he's concerned about with the church is that they might embrace this idea that Jesus never became flesh. And you say, well, what's the big deal to do with that? One commentator writes, the incarnation is the essential creed of Christianity. On the doctrine, all else of Christianity itself stands upon. I mean, think about it. It's the central miracle of the faith. If Christ did not come in the flesh, if God did not come and dwell among us, we would never have the ability to know who the Father is. Jesus wouldn't have the ability to experience death and suffering. He, he would not have experienced what we've experienced. He could not have been our substitute sacrifice, which Jesus as God alone could have done. And there wouldn't be the victorious uh, act over death itself. In other words, the incarnation allows us to have a savior, a sympathetic high priest, a mediator, and draws the truths out from the virgin birth all the way to the resurrection. I think Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology is correct. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal God could come and join himself to human nature forever so that an infinite God became one person with a finite man that will remain for eternity the most, is the most profound miracle and the most, prof excuse me, most profound mystery in the church. That's the incarnation. This is what John is saying. If they deny this, we got a problem. Now, <laughs> let's not kid ourselves. The, the bottom line here is these false teachers, it's an un, unwillingness to submit to the things of the Lord. Is it not? When I, I meet people that are, just, they want to argue theology. Uh, da, da, da. There's really an underlying issue. They got a real problem with what is revealed here. They got a real problem about bending their knee before a holy God who's revealed himself to us. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you don't believe that, you're not gonna be saved. And John has already stated, if you don't know the son, you don't know the father. 
They hinge together. Why did he write? So that your joy might be complete. If you don't know Christ, this whole thing unravels. We might as well go home. I got better things to do on a Sunday morning like sleeping in. No. The but in verse three of every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is accentuating there is a lack of allegiance to God himself. False doctrine is just as much a sin as unrighteous behavior. Don't miss it. Remember, there's three things that he's taking us through a cycle. Your conduct, your love for one another, and a proper conduct or theology. Those all three hinge together. What do you do with Jesus? Perhaps this morning you've relegated him to being just a great guy that once lived. He's just one of many ways to the Lord. You heard the I am statements. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You can't get through it with Muhammad. You can't get through it through Buddha. It is only through Christ. C.S. Lewis made a statement that is so profound. He says, this Jesus, a man who if it was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, only C.S. Lewis, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Wow. That's our Jesus. And C.S. Lewis understood it well, and he spells it out, and John is saying, listen, test the spirits. The bottom line, where is their Christology? What are they doing with this Jesus? Is he exclusive? Is he sharing the stage with some other social issue? Or is it Christ and Christ alone? We as creatures are not afforded the opportunity to redefine the creator. Failure to recognize the full deity and humanity of Christ, as stated here in the text, is in line with the Antichrist. Why? Because you are stripping Christ of who he is. And this is not foreign to them because John says in verse 3 at the latter part, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming and that spirit that permeates is here in the world even now. This leaves us with an application and it's there in your notes. Knowing Christ provides the ability, don't miss this, to discern truth. I'm preaching to the choir. You're a very astute lot. We are blessed to have a congregation that knows the word and you know it well. Kudos, keep it up. But don't miss this undertow, or not an undertow, but the, the, the subtext, and that is we have the ability to discern truth, which gives us meaning, it gives us direction, and it gives us peace. One of the greatest cons of this past century is the glorification of doubt. In a cloak of intellectualism and false humility, the world provides no answers, 
no bedrock for the storms of life, no peace or comfort, and certainly no hope. I sat on the bed of a hospital in a room this past week, and that couple asked, how does anyone do this without Christ? I said, I don't know. Instead, this world feeds anxiety, confusion, and hopelessness with the applause of uncertainty, doubt, and a fear of dogmatism. This last week in the news, Mirit Regev in Israel is still waiting to hear if her daughter is alive or not. She states, like a dead person, I have fear and uncertainty. I want to know. I feel like I'm in a bad movie. Oh, church, we have closure. We have certainty and a glorious direction and peace that gives us the ability to ascertain truth, to be able to test the spirits because of the indwelling of the spirit and the power of God's word, we have the ability to discern truth. And in so doing, we can see the big picture. We got the peace that passeth understanding. We, we've got the joy and we've got the hope that comes because we know. But John isn't done. Verse four is a familiar verse that many of us have memorized. He says, you are from God. I love that. Little children and have conquered them. I think a direct reference is to the false teachers. In other words, you've overcome. You've able to ascertain. You've not succumbed to their teaching. He says, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is. And I think here is a reference to Satan in the world. You is emphatic here, by the way, as he launches into verse four. You! Let me tell you about you. You are from God. In other words, your source, your origin, your existence. And because of that, you are victorious. <laughs> Amen is right. It, it links it back to chapter 3, verse 24. Look at 324. The person who keeps his commandments resides in God and God in him. Now this we know God resides in us by the spirit he's given us. Greater is he, the Holy Spirit, is in us than he that is in the world. The evil one can do and will do anything he can to undermine the faith. He will have you question the identity of Jesus. He will seek to, to malign the glory of Christ. But we have one that's greater. And don't you love that John says, my little children. This sucker is personal. He's called us before the foundation of the world he thought of us when he sent his son. He formed us in our mother's womb. He worked in our hearts to respond to the truth. He's granted us forgiveness. He's given us the spirit and he will see us glorified. I ask you, what can Satan do? Nothing. You are held in his hand this morning. No wonder the old hymn writer said, oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. Aren't you thankful, by the way, this victory is not dependent on us? It's on the Lord who gives us the victory. It's the one who intercedes for us. 
It's the one who's given us the permanent dwelling of the Spirit. It's the one who's assured us of his return. And it's he who was guaranteed that someday that little guy called Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire. (laughs) It's already been written. It's already done. That's our Lord. And he says, this one who dwells in you is greater than this in the world. Now he's used his world several different ways here. In verse three, world is used to refer to the globe. Certainly here who's in the world is, is really referring to the evil mankind that dwells. And in verse five, it's even further highlighted. They are from the world meaning the sinfulness, that which characterizes people with an evil attitude that's contrary to the Lord. They are the world, therefore they speak from the world's perspective and the world listens to them. We might, as believers, followers of Jesus, live on planet Earth, but we live otherworldly. (laughs) We're not living for the things of the world. We don't resonate with the things of the world. I love when my teenage kids come home and say, you know, I just had to get out of that conversation. It was so, ooh, that's great. That's not the world we live in. Yes, we have to be salt. Yes, we have to be light. And so our vision is not based upon what we are to do, but what God is doing, what he has done, and what he will do. And that leads us to a second application there in your notes. Knowing Christ provides the ability to have victory in this world. Our victory is grounded in Christ's victory at the cross. It's maintained in our adherence to the truth. I think of Ephesians 6, finally be strengthened in the Lord and the strength of his power. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So it's, it's grounded in the cross, it's maintained in our adherence, and it's guaranteed through the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, as we see here in the text. And so he says in verse 6, we are from God. You are from God, verse 4, we are from God. We're being one happy family. That's what he said earlier in chapter 1. We want you to be part of this fellowship, one with Christ. In Christ with the Father, we're brought into this. He says, we are from God, the person who knows God. Hey, you listen to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Listens. The idea here is, is an apprehension of not just the cognitive, but it's the effective domain. It's a full effect of heart and life being brought in. It's been said that it takes patience to listen. It takes skill to pretend you are listening. <laughs> Think about that. Some of you are already thinking about lunch. It, uh, I understand. It takes patience to listen, and it takes skill to pretend you're listening. For the believer, it takes the Holy Spirit to listen. And that's his point here. In fact, you notice, he says, but whoever is not from God, notice a phrase he omits. It's key. Who knows God, he does not highlight there. The one who doesn't listen can't know because there's no relationship. We as followers of Jesus have a relationship that allows us to know him and to have the intimacy and to be able to listen. They do not. 
And the one who listens understands, and I love this, look the last phrase, by this you know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deceit. You're able to sauce this whole thing out. You're able to see, it takes us back to full swing. This is how you can test the spirits. It's how you can know. As I said, I've thought much about this text this week in light of our congregation. Our church is not in danger of clinging to false prophets or embracing a a wrong Christology. At least I'm not seeing anything. (laughs) Um, You're good students of the word, as I said earlier. Where I believe God is wanting us to hear from this passage this morning is that in the midst of the command to test the spirits, there's a fundamental idea that I think John is even highlighting to his readers. And that is the third application at the bottom of your notes. And that is knowing Christ provides the ability to have fellowship with the Lord. This access is not a mere intellectual exercise, but a living apprehension with full effect on mind, heart, and life. In other words, knowing our Lord provides intimacy, which provides assistance in understanding life's most difficult questions and an opportunity to glorify him even in the midst of it. I wrote down just a few thoughts in light of the text, and and I think this subtext that's that's flowing underneath it all. I wrote down, as we grow in our intimacy with the Lord, we begin to grasp all the more our inability to explain God and his ways. In so doing, we possess a greater appreciation of his greatness and his holiness. We come to understand that the confidence in ourselves, which the world has, is actually a mirage. After all, who is equal to God? And, and at the end of the day, we have no position to question his motives. Instead of asking, why does God allow war in the Middle East? We should ask, why does God not allow the world to destroy itself entirely in its iniquity and its sin. The patience and love of God. God is great. And he knows the big picture. And as John states here in chapter four, we get to enter into that. Oh, we're not gonna fully grasp. Thankfully, we have all eternity for him to teach us and to figure these things out. But Joseph Think about this. Joseph, betrayed by his own siblings, sold into slavery, losing a job because he was slandered, and winding up in Egyptian prison for no fault of his own, was no mistake. Moses in the wilderness for 40 years, no mistake. David raising sheep and fighting lions, no mistake. Ruth losing her husband, brother-in-law, and father-in-law, no mistake. Israelites being carried into Babylon, no mistake. The man born blind, no mistake. Christ dying on the cross, no mistake. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. But I'm not done. As we grow in our intimacy with the Lord, we gain a better understanding of his power, his sovereignty. When we ask the question, doesn't he have the power to deliver? Yes. 
Isaiah 40, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom will they liken you to, O Lord? Who can compare with you? For you are the Almighty One. There's a quote at the bottom by Whittle. It's from a hymn. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me is daily shown, nor why with mercy Christ and love redeem me for his own, but I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. How do I know all that? Because I have fellowship with him. I brought into this intimacy. Let me give you another. As we grow in our intimacy with the Lord, I would dare argue we can grasp the magnitude of his love for us or begin to grasp even greater. Questions of has he abandoned us? Does he still love me? Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And as Paul noted in Romans 8, nothing, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. (laughs) So this week, as you battle that cancer, as you hear the word terminal, as you receive the pink slip or deal with accusations that are being leveled in the news or understand that your child has just gone rogue in the faith, don't forget, the Lord stated, I will never leave you nor forsake you. As we grow in our intimacy with the Lord, we rejoice, I would argue, in our sufferings because we're drawn in closer communion with the Savior. Oh, it doesn't mean we won't have questions. It doesn't mean there'll be anxious thoughts that arise. We will have to battle those. But we'll come to a point, I would argue, in our intimacy with the Lord that we will quote or echo Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, he is strong. And finally, as we grow in our intimacy with the Lord through knowing him, we recognize that all of this is for God's glory. 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Samuel Radagast wrote this, wherever my God ordains is right, holy his will abideth. I will be still wherever he, whatever he does and follow wherever he guideth. He is my God. Though dark my road, he holds what I shall not fall. Whatever, wherefore to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away and patiently I wait his day. So what do we say, O church? We say what Paul wrote in Romans 11. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.
That's our Lord. And as John states here, we are to test the spirits. And the reason we can do that, the reason we can be more than conquerors is because we have been brought in and we can have intimacy with our Lord and those life's most difficult questions he begins to answer as he reveals himself and his truth through his word and in the power of the spirit. Father, we as a church have much to rejoice over. One, because of who you are. Two, because you've revealed yourself. And we have salvation in your name. And, and all that that comes, we rejoice. We're, we're about to enter into our new home on November the 19th, and we rejoice. Well, Lord, I know there's many in our congregation that are hurting physically. This has been a rough week for us as a church. Several weeks, several months. Lord, the Deanna Burrises, the Ashley Hart, Ashlyn Kyle Harvey, Lord, those that have been terminated in the last couple weeks from jobs, those who've shared behind closed doors of wayward children. Lord, this world stinks. <laughs> and we are so thankful that you knew that. You entered time and space via your son who took on flesh and dwelt among us, went to a cross, bore our sin, and rose from the dead. And Father, those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we are allowed to enter into that throne room. The throne room where we'll find wisdom and peace, joy and hope. All because of your son, Christ. And Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the ability to discern truth because your spirit dwells within us. And thank you that we are more than conquerors. We are victorious. Lord, we know the end. We know that there's a day coming when your son will return. And it won't be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. It will be the great I am coming for his church and then returning as the victorious king. Lord, we rejoice in the name of our blessed Savior, our mediator, the great I am, your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.